This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Morning. I'm going to start, if I may, with a story. This is my first day on the job with the St. Louis Cardinals, March 19, 2006. Uh, back then, Walt Jockety, some of you probably still remember the name, Walt was the general manager. After the 2005 loss in the playoffs, uh, he reached out and asked if I'd be willing to help the players and coaches develop mental toughness needed to win the first World Series. It had been 20-plus years at that point in time. And the way Walt and I put it together, I was to spend a week down in the Jupiter, Florida, the spring training complex with the players and coaches. And every day that week, I was to start in the morning with a two-hour presentation with players and coaches and then be available throughout the day to work with any individual who wanted some additional attention. And then after the spring training week broke, uh, I was to be available about 20 hours a week to work throughout that 2006 season with any player or coach who wanted some, again, individual attention. I think it was a Tuesday morning, uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm in Walt Jockety's office, and it was the first morning I was in about 30 minutes supposed to do the first presentation with the players and coaches. But Walt looked at me and asked if I wanted to go meet Tony LaRussa. Now, back then, again, Tony LaRussa was the manager, the head coach, if you will, and I thought it was odd that I hadn't met Tony LaRussa at that point in time, but it was my first opportunity with the team, so I was really just going with the flow. Walt walks me into Tony LaRussa's office, and to give you a visual of Tony's office, it's maybe 14 by 14. Very bare bones office, no paintings on the wall. I'm not even sure if there's paint on the wall. The only thing in the office is a desk. And when Walt walks me in that morning, Tony's in his uniform, sitting at the desk, working on some paperwork. And Walt says, Tony, this is Jason Selk. He's going to do the sports psychology for the team this year. And Tony LaRussa barely looks up. I don't even think I get eye contact. And he goes right back down to working on what he's working on. And then there's this weird, awkward silence in the room where Tony won't look at me. And now Walt won't even look at me. And I'm thinking, <laughs> something feels off here. After about a minute, Tony LaRussa stands up. I didn't have any pants on, okay, so you talk about humility. When a man with no pants puts you in your place, that's a new level of humble. I hope nobody in this room, me a second time, ever has to go through something like that. But he stands up, walks around the corner of his desk, he barely looks at me, and he says these words. You have 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, well, actually, I've got a contract that says I'm going to be in there with you for two hours, and then I'll be with you all day, we'll do that for a week, and then you've got me all season long. And I start thinking about that contract, and I know at the bottom there's space for two signatures, but for the life of me, in that moment, I can only recall seeing that contract with one signature, mine. Now, I'm no attorney, but I can put together pretty quickly, that's probably not a binding contract. And I also put together, it doesn't seem like I have a job with the St. Louis Cardinals. It appears I have an interview with the St. Louis Cardinals. And it's a 10-minute interview. And this poses all kinds of problems, because I've told everybody back here in St. Louis, where I live, that I'm the new director of sports psychology for the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> so I think, okay, if I've got an interview, I better make it count. I go in the clubhouse. Uh, that's where the presentation's going to take place that morning. Uh, clubhouse is just a fancy baseball term for a locker room. But it's a fancy locker room. It's not like the locker rooms you and I are used to. There's no metal doors, no metal lockers. But really what you have is about a third or a quarter of this size, a very well-appointed room, and there's nothing in the center of the room. What you have is just on the perimeter, on all the walls, you have each player's locker, if you will. And the locker's just a four to five foot cutout space, and players put their uniforms and personal items, and then in front of each player's locker sits a stool. And when I walk in that morning, 
all the players are in their uniform sitting at the stools in front of their lockers. So if you go back to 2006, St. Louis Cardinals were a very veteran-rich club in 2006. Over here in this back corner, all-star third baseman Scott Rowland. Right next to Rowland, Jim Edmonds. Next to Edmonds, David Eckstein. A few players down from Eckstein in this corner, just coming off the 2005 Cy Young, Chris Carpenter. Uh, next to Carpenter, brand new upstart pitcher on the team, Adam Wainwright. A couple players down from Wainwright, Yadier Molina. Right next to Molina, a fellow by the name of Albert Pujols. And the list of players goes on and on. And they had brought in a small white table that sat about 10 feet from where I was presenting. That's where they had the four coaches. So we had former first base coach, Dave McKay, third base coach, Jose Akendo, uh, pitching coach, in my mind, greatest pitching coach of all time, Dave Duncan, and front and center, Tony La Russa. Uh, pants are on now, by the way, thankfully. And I start the presentation this way. I say, originally, I thought I had two hours with you all. I've just been notified I have 10 minutes. What I was going to cover with you is something called the mental workout. Mental workout is something I developed a few years back. It has since been scientifically proven to put you in a position to play better baseball, more consistent. I won't have time to cover all five tools of the mental workout, but I will have time to cover one. And I launch into the first tool of the mental workout, something called a centering breath. Now, there's a pillar about right here from where I'm presenting. And on that pillar, there sits a clock. And I swear I can just hear every second ticking away on that clock. I finished the first tool of the mental workout, the centering breath, and the clock's screaming at me that I've been up here now for eight minutes. I don't want to press my luck with Tony LaRussa, so I ask if there are any questions. Now, you know that silence that's worse than silence, the crickets chirping? That's what goes on in my head, it feels like for an eternity, and then thankfully, Dave Duncan, this is by the way why I consider him the greatest pitching coach of all time, Dave Duncan raises his hand and says, would you teach the second tool of the mental workout? And I look at Tony LaRussa, and Tony gives me the nod, and so I move into the second tool of the mental workout, something called a performance statement. Performance statement is really just a very specific and individualized level of focus. Focus is one of those words, if you look at the science, if you look at the research on it, it really gets thrown around quite loosely, and what you'll find is, unless you take the time to individualize and make it very specific, the word focus conceptually is just a waste of breath. You must, in terms of focus, for it to be effective, identify for you, for that person specifically, what is it that you need to focus on? And that's what the performance statement does. It forces each player to identify during competition what are the two or three items during competition that if they will focus on those two or three items will put them in a position to play most optimally. After I finish the second tool, the performance statement, Again, I ask if there are any questions. Again, crickets chirping silence. This time, thankfully, doesn't go on quite as long. And in the back corner of the room, our third baseman, Scott Rowland, raises his hand and says, would you mind teaching the third tool of the mental workout? Again, I look at Tony LaRussa, and Tony gives me the nod, and so I move into the third tool of the mental workout, something called the personal highlight reel. Personal highlight reel is an advanced form of visualization that once we identify for each player specifically what to focus on, then we ask the player to spend three minutes visualizing before every game in competition only being focused on those two or three items. Really what it does is it takes the concept of focus from a pep talk and turns it into a very trained skill. It gives our players slight edge in consistency. I finished the third tool of the mental workout, the personal highlight reel, and Chris Carpenter. Now keep in mind, Carpenter had just been awarded the 2005 Cy Young. If you're not a baseball fan, what that means is he's voted in 2005 one of the top two pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. You can make an argument in 2005 that Carpenter is the single most dominant pitcher in all of baseball, but nonetheless, he's one of the leaders on the team for all the right reasons. After I finish that third tool of the mental workout, Carpenter stands up, takes maybe four or five steps forward so he's closer to the center of the room and he says these words. Everybody better pay attention because this is what it takes for us to take it to the next level. And I'm up front thinking, ball, <laughs> right? So I have this great fortune where Tony allows me to stay that first day and finish the two hour presentation, all five tools of the mental workout in total. 
And then he asked if I'd be willing to work with his players and coaches that day individually. And then I'm lucky enough, he asked me back for a second day. And a third day and a fourth day and every day that week, just as we had kind of put together before the season began. And then in 2006, I spent about 20 hours a week working individually with players and coaches. And in 2006, the St. Louis Cardinals go on to win their first World Series in a 24-year period of time. And then I'm lucky enough, they asked me back for 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, in which time we win our second World Series in a six-year period of time. Now, I stepped down after that 2011 World Series as Director of Sports Psychology for the St. Louis Cardinals to pursue some other opportunities. But I start with the story of my time with the Cardinals with all of you this morning for two reasons. One, I want to get anyone I can get to listen to me to know those two World Series, that is 100% me. Please tell anyone you can get to listen to you. Now, truth of the matter is, when I was with the team, I played a very, very small role. But I took that role very, very serious. The real reason I start with the story of my time with the Cardinals with all of you this morning is I've got this really cool job. What I get to do on a daily basis, literally, is work with some of the absolute most successful individuals and organizations on this planet. And what's really cool to me about my job is I'm always studying you folks. See, I'm always watching and looking for those patterns. Okay, what is it about the really successful people, the really successful teams and organizations? What do they do differently? And it didn't take long my time with the St. Louis Cardinals before one of those patterns started to emerge. In fact, it was before that very first day I even got to the first question break. So my very first day on the job, before I was even working for the team, eight minutes into my time with the team, I started to see one of those patterns. See, I'm standing there, go back, I'm, I'm standing there in that clubhouse with all those players and coaches, and look, I'm name dropping for a reason. All those names I mentioned, those are all likely Hall of Famers. It means they're literally the best in the world at what they do. Had a very valued craft in this society. And I'm standing in front of them, a complete nobody, just hoping, fighting for a chance. And what I see six, seven minutes in totally shocks me. I'm looking around that room, and before I even get to that first question break, every one of those names I mentioned, they're all taking notes. You want to guess who's taking notes most feverishly? That's right, Tony LaRusso, a man who knows more about baseball than anyone in that room combined. Now, I knew it was something really special when I was seeing it. I didn't have the right language for it until a few years later. I was working with one of the top players in the NHL. He had been for a while, and I asked him this question. I said, why? Why are you this good this long? Now, I'll never forget his response. He said to me, I have an obsession for improvement. I thought, that's it. That's what I saw with the St. Louis Cardinals. The first 10 minutes on the job and consistently for the six-year period of time, I worked with that team. That no matter how good they were, even when they were the best, literally, in the world, they were always looking for a way to get just a little bit better. Now, this I want to I make a point because I'm seeing... These days, or the last 18 months or so, a whole lot more people are talking about this obsession for improvement. I'm seeing blogs and podcasts and now even chapters in books are being written on it. And I'm going to tell you, normal people with this obsession for improvement, normal people are totally screwing it up. I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to tell you the difference between what the highly successful do and what normal people do when it comes to improvement. Normal people, normal people are trying to improve everything all the time, all the way. And I'm just going to tell you, it comes down to channel capacity. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but you have to understand there is a biological bandwidth that each of us have in our brains. It's built in, and it's extremely common across the species, meaning we all basically have the same bandwidth. And the biggest mistake normal people make is we like to assume we can take on more than we actually can. See, trying to improve everything all the time, all the way, is a recipe for fill in the blank. A recipe for? No inconsistency. See, what the highly successful people do is they are very consistent at the most important things. I'll tell you, so this is my favorite quote, my third book, Organized Tomorrow Today, it's my favorite quote in the whole book on page six. Highly successful people never get everything done in any one given day, but what they always do is get the most important things done each and every day. My favorite quote from my new book, Organize Your Team Today. These days, people are trying to be great at so many things, they're compromising their ability to be great at the most important thing. 
Right? And all boils down to channel capacity, the biological bandwidth. What you realize, what you must realize is, if you want to make improvements, the magic number is one. See, here's one thing I know. Everyone in this room is already successful. Every one of you. There's no doubt about that. And what I've found working with successful people, if you can just be consistent, if you can get all over one thing, make one improvement consistently, not for a day or a week or a month, do it for a year. If you make one improvement and you do it consistently, that right there will be enough to take you from where you are right now to the next level. I'll guarantee that. But it's a whole lot easier said than done. Okay, so go back. This is why I start with all of you story of my time with the St. Louis Cardinals. It comes down to this obsession for improvement. See, here's one thing, another thing I know. See, none of you would be in this room if you didn't have that obsession for improvement. Obviously, you wouldn't be here. Right now, what you gotta really work on is find your one thing. Now, Brett and Tim and Visionary, they've put together a great program for you today. There's gonna be all kinds of content. And what you have to decide, and I tell you, take notes. But before you walk through those doors and go to your car, look at your notes and circle your one thing. Find one thing, because if you try to take even two or three or five pieces of information or improvements, you try to take them out there and plug them into your life, you're already running at full capacity. You try to improve two, three, four, five things at once, guess what? It's going to be a recipe for, and a month from now, probably even sooner, you're going to be right back to where you're sitting today. Find your one thing. So that's the challenge, and I'd, I'd challenge you in every speech you hear, find the one thing that jumps out at you. Right, now I'm going to start to dive into the content of what I want to try to get into your head today. Something called RSF, Relentless Solution Focus. Again, it's probably if I had to say, okay, what's the single most common pattern of those highly, highly successful people? This is what I'd probably tell you it is, this Relentless Solution Focus. I'm going to introduce it with a story. October 13, 1972. A fellow by the name of Nando Parado gets on an airplane with 44 of his best friends and teammates. They're headed to an international rugby competition in South America. There's the planes in the air for seven hours and Nando and his teammates are throwing the rugby ball around the cabin. The plane crashes violently into the side of the Andes Mountain. Now I'm gonna ask you just for a moment to have some perspective. Just for a moment I want you to put yourself in Nando's position. Here's your situation. You're still strapped into your seat, but your seat is no longer a part of the airplane. Upon impact, the fuselage was ripped wide open, your seat was ejected. Sub-zero temperatures, feels like someone's taken a baseball bat to your head. You regain consciousness by what appears to be someone taking handfuls of sand, throwing them as hard as they can into your face. It's the sleeting hail and snow. And the worst part, as you do regain consciousness, you quickly realize 15 of your best friends are no longer among the living. Now again, just for a moment, I'm gonna ask you to put yourself in that seat. I think it'd be extremely normal in a situation like that, to allow your thoughts to focus on the problem. Now, let's be clear, this is horrific, but Nando Parado is not normal. He has learned, he wasn't born this way, he has learned to control his thoughts. Instead of allowing them to do what's completely normal, which is to focus on the problem, he forces his thoughts very quickly to solution. Doing so, while still strapped into his seat, by making himself answer one simple question. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer? inventory. And for eight straight days, Nando Parado forced his thoughts to focus on inventory of life, health, and resource. On the evening of the eighth day, as Nando and his teammates are huddled in the belly of the fuselage in an attempt to use body temperature to survive another of the frigid temperature evenings, another problem. Avalanche comes down the mountain burying everyone and everything. Now again, I want you to have some perspective. I want you to put yourself in Nando's shoes. Here's your experience now. You're completely buried in snow, total blackness. Again, feels like someone's taking a baseball bat to your head. You don't know up from down. And the worst part here, you can't breathe. There's no oxygen under that much snowpack. Put yourself, if you will, just for a moment in that position. Now again, I think it would be extremely normal in a situation like that, to allow your thoughts to focus on the problem that now literally has you surrounded. Nando Parado is not normal. Again, he wasn't born this way. He has learned to control his thoughts. Doing so, again, by making himself answer one simple question. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer? Dig. And that's what he aggressively does. He digs himself out and then goes to work digging the heads of his teammates out. In the avalanche, Eight more of Nando's best friends pass away. 
30 or so days on the mountain, another problem, starvation. At these temperatures, starvation sits, sets in much more quickly. Nando's solution to the starvation problem was not a popular solution. We will use our perished teammates as food so that we may survive. This is where many people start to recognize a very famous story turned into a very popular movie and book about Nando Parado, Alive. Although Nando's solution to the starvation problem was not a popular solution, Nando Parado is relentless. And in the end, everyone did eat. 72 days on the mountain, Nando realizes search and rescue is called off. If we're going to make it off this mountain, one of us is going to have to hike off the mountain. Now, what's interesting, they've run numerous models with numerous professionals to identify if, in fact, it's even humanly possible to hike off that mountain under those conditions where they were located. Every model, every professional comes back with the same response. Absolutely not possible. And yet, for 10 straight days, Nando Parado forced his thoughts to focus on one thing, one inch in the right direction sometimes requiring hours, literally hours, to move one single inch in the right direction. And after 10 straight days of one inch, Nando Parado took one final step, bringing himself that much closer to a ridge, overlooking a raging river that could not be crossed, seeing far in the distance a man sitting on a horse who would eventually save Nando's life and 15 of Nando's best friend's lives. Nando Parado has what you call a relentless solution focus. Now, my guess is everyone in here has heard this pep talk in some way, shape, or form before. It's the old pep talk of be positive, don't be negative. And my guess is most everybody, if not everybody, would be thinking, okay, yeah, that's good advice. I think you probably have equally as many people saying, okay, good advice, easier said than done. So what we're going to do over this next 40 minutes or so, we're going to figure out how do people like Nando Parado actually train the brain to be solution-focused to be abnormal, to be positive. See, so here's what we know. Biologically, and I, I would ask, everybody in your packet should have a handout or a, a booklet, looks like this. If you'll go in maybe two pages, right after there's a picture of me, and on the other side, there's kind of what looks like a worksheet. I'd ask you all to go there, I'd ask you to grab a pen. I'm gonna throw a lot of information at you again, and what I want you to do is be able to have it all right here in one spot. This is the most important information I want everybody walking out of here with, and of those things, I want you to circle one. That's gonna be your one, so I'm gonna to try to make it easy for you. Now look, if nothing else, taking notes is gonna help you pass the time. So I'm gonna challenge all of you, this stuff's way too important. You have to understand how your brain works and what you can do about it. So I'm gonna ask, really, please take the notes. It'll be worth it. All right, now, you have to understand that although, yeah, be positive, don't be negative, sounds like good advice, biologically, we're not built this way. All right, it's what I call question number one, the number one obstacle to mental toughness. Why don't you put this in? P-C-T, problem-centric thought. Here's your definition of problem-centric thought. The biological tendency to focus on the negative. If you focus on the negative, you're not broken, you're normal. The good news is even though we're biologically, every one of us, including the likes of Nando Parado, we're all biologically wired to focus on the negative. Even though that's the case, it's called neuroplasticity. We know, we've known this for years and years and years. Most people just don't have it as common knowledge. There are certain things hardwired that can be retrained. This is one of them. We can retrain PCT out and replace it with RSF. All right, now let me give you an example of PCT. Again, this is the number one obstacle to mental toughness. The most valuable resource known to our species. More valuable than all the cash, all the goods, all the you name it. Anybody want to guess what that is? Oxygen, okay? Without it, you die the fastest. Now, when's the last time anyone in this room thought to yourself, this is awesome. This life is so great. I've got an abundance of the most valuable resource known to my species. I don't even have to work very hard to get it. I'd be willing to bet sizable amounts of money nobody in this room has had that thought recently. Now, compare that with when's the last time you had the thought, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough respect. I don't have enough you fill in the blank. That's PCT, all right? Now, what we're trying to do is get rid of that. And I'll tell you why it's so devastating to the species and performance in particular here in a moment. We're trying to get rid of it and replace it with RSF. Here's your definition of RSF. Remember, RSF stands for Relentless Solution Focus. Definition, within 60 seconds. So this is question number two on that worksheet. RSF, Relentless Solution Focus, within 60 seconds. Those are the first few words of the definition. Within 60 seconds, replace all negative thinking with solution-focused thought. 
within 60 seconds, please do not forget the within 60 seconds. I'll explain that as well. Within 60 seconds, replace all negative thinking with solution-focused thought. All right, a little pop quiz for question number three. Normal people focus on problems, the negative. It's totally normal. Mentally tough people have learned to focus on solutions. There's your answer to question number three. Put that in, please. All right, let's talk about why this PCT RSF is so impactful on our species. It has to do with the intersection at expectancy theory. Here's your definition for expectancy theory. That which you focus on expands. That which you focus on expands. Now I'm going to give you a split screen scenario of how PCT and RSF intersect with expectancy theory. I'm going to use the backdrop of Major League Baseball. Okay, so the first scenario, this is going to be a normal player. This is PCT, is in his head, he's not done any RSF training. Situation is, bottom of the seventh inning, bases are loaded, his team's losing by a run, two outs. This player digs into the batter's box, eyes down the pitcher, gets his pitch, and strikes out. Now, as he's headed to get his glove to head out to the outfield, this is what starts up. Oh man, this is not good. Second time in two weeks I've struck out with the bases loaded. I got a contract year coming up. You know, we just bought that second home. I'm not sure we can afford that second home. Frankly, I'm not getting any younger. If I don't get that major league contract, I'm not even sure we can afford the first home. I wish I would have put more money away. What's wrong with me? How am I going to explain this to my wife? What am I going to tell our children? I'm a complete loser. Now, here's one thing I know, unfortunately. Every one of us sitting in this room can relate to it. It's totally normal. It is a completely normal human experience. We let our thoughts focus on an error, a mistake, a bad bounce, whatever it might be. Those PCT winds start to swirl. They suck us in. And then the next thing we know, we can have ourselves convinced we're a complete loser. Now, the issue is this guy's standing in the outfield of a major league game while the game's still being played. Remember, body follows thought. And unfortunately, now here comes a long fly ball his way. Now, this is a good guy. This is a guy you root for. He's a 100% effort guy, but he's distracted. So he doesn't get a good read, doesn't get a good jump. Once he sees it, he does take off. Dead sprint, everything he's got into the corner. Even lays out trying to make the catch. Ball bounces off the end of his glove, rolls around in the corner. Now there's a man standing on second base, and his team is still losing by a run. Goes back to a spot in the outfield. This is what starts up in his head. Oh, man, this is really not good. Second time in two weeks, I've struck out with the bases loaded. On tape, it's probably going to look like I should have made that catch. You know, we just bought that second home. Not sure we can afford even the first home. I wish I would have put more away. How am I going to explain this to my wife? What am I going to tell our children? I'm a complete loser. Body follows thought. And now here comes a second long fly ball his way. Now remember, this is a good guy. He's a 100% effort player, but he's distracted. His mind is working against him. Doesn't get a good read. Doesn't get a good jump. Once he sees it, again, everything he's got, dead sprint, into the corner, lays out a second time, trying to make the catch. Ball gets down, bounces around, rolls around the corner. Now there's a man standing on second base, and his team is now losing by two runs. That which you focus on, you will expand. All right, now let's compare this. Same situation, same backdrop. This player, though, has gone through RSF training. He works on controlling his thoughts. Bottom of the seventh inning, bases loaded, two outs, team's losing by a run. Digs into the batter's box, eyes down the pitcher. Gets his pitch and strikes out. The RSF is not going to stop you from having problems. Having problems is part of the human experience. What RSF does is it teaches you how to deal in a much more effective manner with the problems we are guaranteed to have. This is what goes on in his head as he's headed to the dugout to get his glove before heading to the outfield. Thinks to himself, oh man, that's not good. Second time and ah! Now, here's where a two-step process occurs. First step, he recognizes the thoughts are going in the wrong direction. Step two, he gets control of the thoughts and moves them back in a productive manner. Doing so very efficiently by making himself answer one simple question. What's one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer, looks down, sees a glove on his hand, thinks I could probably focus on playing some defense. Now, earlier I told you about a tool that all the players I work with, performance statement, that specific and individual focus. For this player, when he's playing defense, his performance statement is track the ball, quick feet, follow through. So he's standing in the outfield, and he wants to think about the strikeout. Instead, he's forcing his thoughts to focus on track the ball, quick feet, follow through. The pitcher has the ball in his hand, in his glove, while he stands on the mound. He's in the outfield forcing his thoughts to track that ball that now sits in the pitcher's hand and glove. Pitcher starts his windup. Now the ball's headed toward the hitter. He's tracking the ball. Ball makes contact with the hitter's bat and is now headed his way. He's tracking the ball. Gets a good read. Now it's time for quick feet. 
Gets a great jump. We know this 100% effort guy takes off, dead sprint, everything he's got into the corner, lays out, trying to make the catch. Crowd goes wild, he makes a great catch. Goes back to his spot in the outfield. What do you suppose after making the great catch he wants to think about? We're just curious. Check your own mind. You do 100 things right at work, one thing less than perfect. When you're driving home, what are you letting yourself think about? I know the answer to that and so do you. Okay, this guy's normal, just like you. After a great catch, he still wants to think about the strikeout. Thinks to himself, oh man, if only in the last inning, if I would have put the bat on the ball, I might be on SportsCenter tonight, baby. Top 10. What the heck's wrong with me? Second time, ah! Two-step process occurs. Step one, he recognizes the thoughts are going in a counterproductive manner. Step two, he gets control of the thoughts and moves them in an effective and productive way. Doing so, again, very simply, very efficiently by making himself answer one simple question. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer, track the ball, quick feet, follow through. Here comes the second long fly ball his way. He's tracking the ball. Gets another great read, quick feet, another great jump, takes off, dead sprint, second time. Everything he's got into the corner, lays out a second time, trying to make the catch. Na na na, na na na. Right, sports center. If you have to explain the joke, yeah, just don't you. All right, am I being dramatic or is that real life? I'm just going to tell you. You got the NBA playoffs, you got the NHL playoffs, you got Major League Baseball, you got college level, you got Little League, Bush League. Any game that's going to be played across the country and frankly across the world, that's going to happen in every single game. That is how our brains work. And you don't need to be on a stage or on a field to have that be how it works. At work, that's how it's going to work for you, unless you start working on this. All right, so let's figure out how in the heck do you actually work on it? How do you train the brain so that you have control of those thoughts? I want you to think of it this way. This is what we call the mental chalkboard. If we opened up the heads in this room and looked inside, what we'd see is something like this. Okay, now, what we'd also notice if we looked at the mental chalkboards in this room, we'd notice that this side of the board, this is PCT, it's totally normal. This is where most people would have the majority of their focus and writing. Remember, unless you're working on this, this is exactly where you're going to be. Some of you are using corners and margins. Some of you might even be trying to borrow space from a neighbor on this one. Right, now, what the goal is, we've got to learn how do we spend more time over here. Now, I'm going to make a very important distinction. I'm in no way suggesting that the goal is to get into this perfection zone. It's one of the biggest things that really is counterproductive for performance, this perfectionist mentality. See, if you look at the definition to solution, this is a completely inappropriate definition to solution, and it really screws up human performance. Definition to solution, complete resolution to the problem. And that's where most people get screwed up. Okay, and we're going to come back to this, but I just want you to realize we're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about complete resolution. We're talking about improvement. See, I wrote this in my first book, 10-Minute Toughness, and it's still maybe the best thing I ever put down on paper. When a person learns to emphasize improvement over perfection, progress accelerates dramatically. If you can learn to emphasize improvement over perfection, your progress will accelerate dramatically. Okay, now I want you to understand scientifically how the brain works and why this is such a big deal. Okay, we're going to use Nando as an example. Okay, so Nando has a major problem. He's got a plane crash. And then what Nando does is he gets a solution up on the board. Anybody remember the first solution? Inventory. Remember how long inventory lasted? Eight days. That's right. Now, here's what happens. When you have a problem and you get a solution up on the board, it holds you over here like an anchor. That's a really, really good thing. And we're not worried about this. Okay, but when you get over here, it holds you here like an anchor. But the problem is after the eighth day or when that solution no longer produces improvement, when it's no longer viable for even improvement, it mentally gets crossed off. When it gets crossed off, where do you think the human brain defaults? Right back over here. So it's essential. You must have a solution up on the board. Now, Nando gets his second solution up on the board. You remember second solution? Avalanche comes down. Dig. Now, I don't think I shared with you. Don't quote me on this, but I do think it's correct. Dig lasted 38 hours. They dug the fuselage out. They repositioned it in a manner that if another avalanche came down, they'd be protected. But after 38 hours, that solution goes away. Now, this is what happens for normal people. We try a couple of attempts to get into here. It doesn't get us into here. So then we get discouraged and we say to ourselves, poor me, my problem's too big, I quit. 
I just have one question for that. Is that relentless? Tried two whole times. That's our national average. See, this tool is not called solution focus. This tool is called relentless solution focus. Without the relentless, it doesn't fly. Okay, now let's talk about why this relentless is so hard. Again, it goes back to the biology. You have to understand that when you're over here, allowing your brain to focus on a problem, which is totally normal, your brain releases into your bloodstream a set of neurotransmitters. Those neurotransmitters biologically cause you to feel like garbage. They significantly limit your intelligence, your creativity, all mental functioning whatsoever is significantly handicapped with those neurotransmitters. Doesn't matter what your effort level is, it's biological. Now, the second you cross this line, and it has nothing to do with this garbage, it has everything to do with just get across the line. The second you cross the line, your brain releases a whole new set of neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters on this side of the board, just searching for improvement. Those neurotransmitters biologically cause you to feel much better. They significantly enhance your creativity, your intelligence. All mental functioning whatsoever is significantly increased. It's biological. It has nothing to do with effort. That's why you got to be really careful with this garbage perfectionist mentality. Quit trying to solve the entire equation and just improve the equation. That's the piece you want to learn to be relentless on. Right? Now, again, let's go back to this word relentless because I think a lot of people, they hear this concept and they say, yeah, yeah, I like that. I want to do this. I want to be relentless. I want to have this solution focus and I want to be relentless about it. But then you kind of go and you coach them and you watch them and people really struggle with it. You say, okay, why? Why is it that people are having so hard being relentless? And I know, so I always kind of look inward first. I know for me, my biggest issue was I didn't know what relentless actually meant. You know, again, it's one of the real great byproducts of my job. I get to study all these really successful people, and this is what I've learned relentless is. If you have a heartbeat, if you have one breath in your body, think about Nando Parado. He is literally down to one breath. If you have a heartbeat, if you have a breath in your body, you have an obligation to the organism to get across this line. Now, let's look at that language for a minute. Obligation to the organism. Big words. Wow. What do you mean? Okay, let me explain a few things. Again, biologically speaking, people with RSF are scientifically proven to be significantly happier, healthier, and more successful. Significantly, not measurably, significantly. Here's my favorite statistic. People with RSF live up to 14 years longer than normal people. 14 years. How can a mindset have that kind of an impact on the biology of the human being? Well, I want you to understand, when you're over here doing what's totally normal, releasing those normal neurotransmitters into the bloodstream, those neurotransmitters, there's another word for them, poison. Now, the good news is those neurotransmitters, those toxins, those poisons that our brain can naturally release into our own bloodstream, they're really low doses of poison. But you have to understand, even low doses of poison over time, significant amounts of time, add up to be quite impactful. It's all biology. We've got to learn to control the biology. The human performance will significantly progress when you learn to control your thoughts. See, this, in essence, is what mental toughness is, learning to control your thoughts. Most people don't even realize you can do that. I'd say you have a step or an advantage on other people just with the idea, okay, look, I get to choose my thoughts. And there are very productive thoughts and there are very counterproductive thoughts. We've got to learn how do we get to the productive thinking instead of doing the normal non-productive thinking. All right, so let's, let's kind of go back to the handout, see if we can catch up. How do I know if I'm in need of RSF? So what's the cue? See, here's the thing. Most people kind of hear the speech and say, yeah, okay, all this makes sense. But a lot of times that experience just happens where I get caught up in the negative and I don't even know I'm doing it. Now, here's what I found with people. We're really good at knowing when someone else needs RSF. In fact, I'd be willing to bet there are people in this room right now thinking, oh, my wife needs to be here for this, or my husband, or my children. And look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. If they were here and you weren't, it'd be likely they were thinking you were the one that needed to hear it. Understand this. It's very easy to gauge when someone else is on this side of the board. Self-assessment is much, much, much more difficult. The good news, though, is we've all been given at birth a built-in alarm system that literally screams our name 100% of the time when we're on the problem side of the board. That alarm system is negative emotion. Anytime you experience a negative emotion, it is the cue. It's 100% effective that you're over here. I'll give you the core negative emotion, stress, 
anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. I'd tell you, write them down. Put them somewhere on that paper. It might help you get there a little bit faster. Anytime you experience, and I, I'm guessing somebody in this room one time or another had the experience of stress. Is that about right? Or maybe anxiety? Okay. Stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. Anytime you experience one of those emotions, you must understand that's your cue that says, hey, I'm here. And I need you to know, biologically, human beings, we cannot experience a negative emotion unless the PCT trigger has put the neurotransmitter into our bloodstream. It's not humanly possible. So you have to understand this is 100% effective. Anytime you experience a negative emotion, these are your core, stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. You should say to yourself, okay, I'm on the wrong side of the board. That's step one, that's the recognition. Then what we wanna do is be relentless about getting from here over to here. All right, so the next one in your worksheet, what's called the RSF tool. This is, it's a simple question you ask yourself after you've identified that you're here that will in fact effectively move you across that line. Here's the tool. It's a, again, simple question you wanna ask yourself. What is one thing I can do differently that could make this better. It's also written at the bottom of the worksheet there. What is one thing I can do differently that could make this better? All right, now again, I want you to be very clear. It's a two-step process. Step one is recognition. Recognition happens. You know you're here. You know you're in the counterproductive thinking when you experience a negative emotion. Anytime you're experiencing a negative emotion, you wanna to say to yourself, okay, I know what's going on here. My thoughts are going in the wrong direction. Step two is control the thoughts, move them in a more productive manner, get across the line. You do so by simply asking that question. Now, we wanna do it, go back to you know, the definition of RSF. How long do I wanna give you before you move from here to here? Anybody remember? That's right, now let me explain why. We know biologically, if we can get from here to here, within 60 seconds of onset, you're gonna stay out in front of the neurotransmitter. Now, some of you might have a problem you've been dealing with for a little bit longer than 60 seconds. Some of you in this room, I pretty much guarantee, have been sitting with a problem for weeks, months, some of you even years, and you've convinced yourself there's nothing you can do about it. That doesn't mean that you say to yourself, well, I'm past the 60 seconds, so I'm, I'm really kind of handcuffed. No, that's not it. The point I'm trying to make here is the faster, the better. The faster you can get from the wrong side to the right side, the most ideal, the, the easiest is if you can do it within the initial 60 seconds of onset. But the key is just be relentless about getting across the line. All right, now back to relentless. Another really important question to answer if you're going to get to that relentless piece is, do all problems have solutions? Some of you are saying yes. Some of you are saying no. Some of you engineering accounting minds, you're coming up with your qualifiers about right now. Well, here's the deal. However you answer that question, you're right. Whatever you focus on, you will expand. Now the problem is, if you allow yourself to believe that there are some problems that don't have solutions, when life gets nasty, you will quit early. It would be totally normal. Right? And again, that's where you have to kind of remember. Every problem has a solution, but not with the current definition. And this is, again, why this definition, this perfection definition, complete resolution, totally screws us up. So I'm gonna challenge y'all right now. It's a really important piece mentally of the puzzle. You must redefine solution to an actually a much more appropriate definition. Not only is it more appropriate, more accurate, but it will also have a major, major improvement on your performance. I'm gonna challenge it. It's called the plus one concept. Let's redefine solution instead of complete resolution. Let's redefine it as any improvement whatsoever to the current situation. That is a solution. Any improvement whatsoever. Now, I'm not going to be naive enough to come up here and stand in front of a group like this and say, hey, look, you have this positive mindset. No matter what problem you have, you'll be able to work through it and overcome it. Come on. We're all adults. Everyone in here knows that there is a certain brutality of life that we're all going to. Here's what we do know, though. We may not have the ability as humans to control the climate, the negative climate of the problem. I mean, think about Nando Parado. No matter how positive he could be, he wasn't going to change the fact that the plane had already crashed, it crashed where it had, and people had already passed. There are going to be problems we have that we will not have the ability to change the problem itself. But we always, and this is science, we always have the ability to improve, bare minimum, at least how we're going to deal with the problems we're going to face in this life. 
And that's where that plus one, if you understand that, okay, I may not be able to change the problem itself, but I can always change at least how I'm dealing with it. If you go back to that plus one, and then you say, okay, now with that definition, do all problems have solutions? I think with that definition, knowing that, okay, I may not be able to change the problem, but at the bare minimum, I can change at least how I'm going to deal with that. I think with that definition, you really do have to answer that question with a, yeah, okay, with that definition, with the plus one concept, yep, all problems do have solutions. And see, again, you have to understand how the brain works. If there's no hope, it's called learned hopelessness. It's a, it's a human phenomena. If you believe there's no hope, you will create no hope. You will quit early. And that's why you have to always know that every problem, no matter what life throws at you, every single problem you can make, even if it's just a little bit better, you have control of making every problem, every circumstance, even just a little bit better. And it's when people are relentless about that, that performance absolutely skyrockets. That's when you become absolutely, no doubt, unstoppable. That's where you see the highest performers. That's their mindset. The highest performers aren't people who haven't had problems. I think some of us like to convince ourselves that's the case. Well, well, they just had it easy. Look, I'm telling you, nobody, nobody gets through this experience of life without experiencing the brutality of it. Nobody. That's what the highest performers do is they're just relentless that no matter what life throws at them, they find that one little inch of improvement. And what you'll find is if you're relentless about finding an inch, over time you will be shocked at how far you can traverse. All right, here's the deal. Most people kind of hear this concept. They say, yeah, all right, that, that makes sense. I like this idea of RSF. I'm going to try it, and you'll try it a couple times, and it'll kind of be a one and done. And You might not have it be life-changing or earth-shattering. What will probably happen is you'll have a problem, and instead of getting caught up in the normal drama of it, you'll just move on. If you're a person who likes drama, you're going to hate this. Hate it. Okay, and then you'll try it a couple of times, and then you'll even get to a problem where you have to do a couple of chips away at it, and then you go, okay, yeah, I really like that. And then what happens, once you get sold on it, then you're going to try to jam it down somebody else's throat. Let me tell you how that's going to go. I'll tell you a quick little story. So I travel 11 days every month. Uh, now, my wife, I'm going to say this, she's one of the most positive people I know. In fact, the license plate on our minivan reads RSF for us. She uses RSF. She talks RSF more than I do, and it's awesome. I love it. But I have noticed... A certain situation seems to play itself out every time I come home from being on the road. I get home and we've got three younger children. My wife will meet me in the kitchen and she'll immediately go into a venting session, three to five minutes of all the things that have gone wrong while I've been gone, gallivanting across the country, having a good old time. Now, how do you think it goes? I walk in, my wife vents the problems, and I tell her, I say, Mara, you know what you should have done while I was gone? I'll tell you what I should do. Nobody likes to have your solutions jammed down their throat. And think about it. Do you like to have a plunger put on your face and have somebody go like this? I'm going to say this, and thankfully, I, you know, if she can hear this, and please, if any of you know my wife, do not let this get back to her, even when the solutions are completely obvious. See, this isn't about you becoming a know-it-all. This RSF is not permission for you to start jamming your solutions down everybody else's throat. The power of this tool is in its evaluation, the self-evaluation. Learn to become an expert at asking solution-focused questions. It's your responsibility to answer your solution-focused questions and get other people to ask themselves solution-focused questions. Okay, so imagine, again, I walk in, I've been gone, my wife vents three to five minutes, instead of me telling her what she should have did, how do you think of it go? how do you think it goes if I say, Mara, what's one thing I can do to make it better for you next? How do you think that goes? <laughs> Fellas, write that question down right now. If you could stand up here and see the looks in the lady's eyes when I say that, I'm telling you, this gal, she's hitting her husband over there. Learn to become an expert at asking solution-focused questions. You can cross the line yourself. You can help other people across the line. But in the end, everybody's going to choose their thoughts. Now, inevitably, somebody's going to come to you with a problem. You're going to ask them a solution-focused question, and they're going to say, I don't know. I don't know the solution. Be ready for that. Here's how I want you to deal with that. Say, we're going to play a game. The game is, can't say, I don't know. Here are the rules. I'm going to ask you a question. If you come up with a solution, could be crazy, could be harebrained. Any solution at all, you score a point. You say, I don't know, or anything that symbolizes I don't know, I score a point. First one to one win. We're going to make it easy. All right, so again, somebody comes to you with a problem. You ask a solution-focused question. They say, I don't know. You say, let's play a game. Explain the rules of the game. Ask the question again. They're going to probably say, ah. They'll stop halfway, and then they'll probably look up and to the right, and then you know you just gave them the greatest gift you can give another human, literally. They just got across the line, and the negative poison, the neurotransmitters have stopped, 
and they're now being replaced with positive neurotransmitters. Okay, the final minute or two here, I'm going to tell you how you can speed up the process of developing RSF. First of all, just sitting here through this little presentation, you're a step ahead of the majority of the population out there. Just the idea that, number one, you can control your thoughts, you know how to recognize the counterproductive thinking, and you now have a tool to move you when you, rec you recognize that you're in the counterproductive thinking. That gives you a major, major advantage. You want to speed up the process. In the sheet, there's two additional pages. They're called success log. There are four questions. I use those same four questions. You know, again, it's helped people win World Series, Super Bowls, national championships, just about any collegiate sport you could come up with, Olympic gold medals. Not only that, it's going to help you become a better you. It'll help you in the business world, help you be a better husband, better wife, better mother, better father, better son, better daughter. It makes you a better you. Learn to spend, you know, and again, I'd tell you, don't take more than two or three minutes going through those questions, but three or four days a week, try to answer those questions. It trains your brain to think in a different manner. Don't worry, and some of you say, oh, well, I can't come up with the perfect answers, so I'm not going to even try. Don't worry about the answers. See, it's not the answers we're looking for. It's the questions that we're trying to train. Those questions are very abnormal ways of thought. You're training the questions. That's the neuroplasticity. If you, if you tried to answer the questions three or four days a week, you'd be far ahead of the other people in the population in terms of having RSF be normal and PCT starts to become abnormal. Let's say there's a couple of things and I'll get out of here. Number one, every one of us, unfortunately, is going to come face to face with a problem. And some of you, I'm sure, are dealing with something right now and some of you, I'm sure, it's maybe pretty nasty. The challenge is this, whether it be now or later, Big problem, small problem. Next time you come face to face with a problem, win one. Get one solution up on your board. Start to prove to yourself you can chip away at whatever life's thrown at you. Next time you come face to face with a problem, win one. I was frankly surprised. 8.30 in the morning and you got a full room of people. Be proud of yourself for being in this room. There's no doubt you have an obsession for improvement. Find your one thing. Go get them out there, keep working hard. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.